Father's Day to you all and a very warm welcome to the Greylet Cafe podcast brought to you by Frontinus Limited. Frontinus is a communications consultancy focused on engineering, infrastructure, sustainability, and research. With you today is Inji Musa, political scientist and teaching associate at Cambridge University, and I'm very honored as always to be accompanied by Mr. Anthony Haynes, creative director of Frontinus. Greetings, Mr. Anthony. Hello, Inji. Greetings. So this episode is the first of three on book proposals. Here we discuss four points on how not to write book proposals. In the next episode, we discuss a further five, and we conclude this series with positively asking how to actually write a book proposal. So as many of you may know, Dr. Anthony is author of Writing Successful Academic Books, published by Cambridge University Press, and Writing Successful Textbooks, published by ANC Black. So to say the least, we are in very good hands today <laughs> to learn about writing book proposals. So now before we discuss how not to write book proposals, allow me, Dr. Anthony, to ask why we are discussing book proposals at all on this episode. Um, in many ways, books are not usually thought of as mm-hmm. a gray literature type, so why discuss them here? Well, good question. Yes, it's true that for the most part, books don't form part of grey literature. Uh, but although books don't, book proposals for documents provided by authors to publishers in support of publishing a book, the proposals may be thought of as grey literature. Well, this is quite an interesting distinction for sure. Um, and honestly, uh, a subtle hint on how much work anyone who, who think of publishing a book is going to go through. <laughs> so yeah, just people need to be ready, I guess. Um, so on that note, let's consider the pitfalls that prospective yeah. authors often fall into. So what would you say is the first pitfall? I think the first pitfall is quite a general one. It's to do with misunderstanding the genre of book proposals. Proposals are not primarily an academic form of writing. Essentially, they're a mini business plan. So a proposal is different from writing, uh, let's say, a report on your research. And let me explain why I say that a proposal is a mini investment plan. The costs of producing a book vary enormously according to the type of book and the circumstances, but there are always going to be costs. And typical costs are things like the cost of copy editing, the cost of proofreading, the cost of design, the cost of typesetting, the cost of, if it's produced as a print book, the cost of paper and printing and warehousing and so on. And although these costs vary hugely, they're always going to amount to thousands of pounds. And therefore, the important thing is to get into the mindset of thinking, essentially, a book proposal is an investment plan that explains to publishers why, if they're prepared to invest several thousand pounds in your book, they might expect it to become profitable in due course. Interesting. Wow. So definitely, um as humble, uh, in my humble opinion, and taking my personal experience, when I even thought about writing a book proposal, mm. that was, would never cross my mind. Mm. And I really like that kind of the idea of mini investment plan. I wouldn't say that it's mini taking all the <laughs> kind of the layers that you suggested, but uh, I think you're making it uh, sound feasible for us. So I would take it as mini investment plan, no worries. Uh, okay, what about the second pitfall, if I may? I think the second pitfall logically follows from the first, actually, which is very often authors overemphasize content in their book proposals. So let me explain what I mean by that. Most authors are kind of pretty good at telling you about the contents, what, what would be in the book. 
and they give you, let, let's say, for argument's sake, a, a couple of paragraphs about each chapter. And sometimes as a publisher, you have to get back to authors and say, could you tell us a bit more about this bit? Could you tell us a bit more about that? But in general, you tend to get enough information about the content to be able to make a preliminary decision about publishing or to put it more precisely the problem when you get a book proposal is not normally that you haven't got enough information about content Mm -hmm. interesting i'll give you an example um i read a book proposal by a postdoctoral researcher in university of cambridge and she was clearly a very talented author i mean her cv was just full of you know she won an award for this she'd won an award for that she was a star researcher and her proposal I wasn't the publisher. She asked me to look at it before sending it to the publisher. Her proposal was four pages long and it was four pages describing the contents mm-hmm. and nothing else. So there's no way a publisher can make a decision based on that. Wow. Okay. Um, okay. That maybe takes us to the third pitfall. I think we have a lot to, to think about as as potential mm. writer of book proposal, yeah. but maybe if you can give us a couple more. So like the ones that you have thought of for this episode. So what is the third pitfall? I think the third one is an overvaluation of uniqueness. <laughs> that hurts a lot to be honest (laughs) (laughs) yes but when people write something in you know they write triumphantly of a flourish this book is the only book that does so and so and they tend to think that that's like that that's a good one what i will say to you is that when you say to a sales director of a publishing company this is the only book of its type that person tends to go white and look a bit ill because they will assume that the reason it's the only book of its type is no one's interested in it and there's no market for it, right? So this is, um, I think this is more a problem for academic authors than it is for authors in professional fields. In academia, there is this kind of stress on, on doing things in a novel. And when you write a grant bid, you have to show that the thing you want to research is, you know, no one else has researched this. It's a gap in the literature. So you kind of develop a mentality, actually, which is that novelty is good untrodden paths is good and that's a completely different mentality from book publishing whereas i say if if someone does genuinely come up with, with, with an idea that's completely original that might well just indicate that there's no market for it at all so um i'll, I'll give you an example i actually received a proposal which is going back decades now a proposal for a book on the relationship between great balloonists and their zodiac signs. And the proposal said there is no book about great balloonists and their zodiac signs, to which, of course, the obvious reply is there's a reason why there's no book on great balloonists and their zodiac signs. There won't be any readers for it so actually strangely enough what you want to do is show that your book is quite similar to an awful lot of other books let me give you a classic example if you write if you want to write a book about what caused the first world war that's a perfectly good topic to write a book on and it certainly won't be the only book on that subject and that's fantastic what you want to do is show there are an awful lot of books on what caused the first world war because If there are lots of books, that shows as a market and you want to send it to a publisher that's published loads of books about the First World War Mm. so that it doesn't feel unique. And in fact, the great thing about that is if a publisher's published other books in the same area, they've got a kind of corporate memory 
Like they know how they marketed those books. Mm. They know which kind of accounts placed orders for those books. And so the sales and marketing actually becomes much more straightforward. Now, of course, you don't want your book to duplicate other books in every single way, Mm. but it doesn't have to be distinctive in, in every way. It can be distinctive in one way. You know, it's the only book that draws on this kind of data, perhaps you know, in a historical book, perhaps a new archive has become available and some of the stuff you're writing about is influenced by that, for example. So, yeah, it, it needs to have a, some sort of distinctive approach to it. But I think that's very difficult from suggesting a kind of wholesale uniqueness. Wow. Um, if I may just add a little thing here, um, I think you, you mentioned a very interesting point regarding mentality and how, like, um, mm. someone who's writing a book proposal needs usually is cornered into that mentality of trying to push for uniqueness and an agenda in that respect. And to um, for academics, I would say from my personal experience, when we start at least our academic career very early on, like with undergraduate studies even, um, I feel that most of the time we are actually on the other extreme. So you don't feel that you are uh, sometimes like your ideas are worthy enough or mm. you are always kind of reiterating the literature. Yeah. So you kind of downplay your own ideas most of the time. Uh, but then to kind of get up into the ladder of academia, you are pushed really hard to try to kind of prove that you have some unique contribution. Um, that So yes. if I'm if I heard what you were saying correctly, yes. it's more about kind of finding that real balance between not underdoing yourself which will not get you anywhere yes Uh, yes. neither in publishing nor in kind of more uh, in the teaching career at all but also not trying to push yourself above what is normal to the point that you will be standing there alone and nobody will be kind of coming near you in that respect yes it's interesting um there is in publishing a phenomenon known as second mover advantage. And let me explain what that is. Intuitively, you might think the first mover, the person that does something for the first time ever, gets an advantage because they beat other people. But the second mover advantage works on the idea that the first mover won't get it right. They won't do it optimally. Whatever new kind of project they do, they make some mistakes. And then the second mover can look at the product, identify the weaknesses, look at the reviews mm-hmm. and see the negative comments in the reviews and so on. And then they come along and do the second book of the type and they get it right. And I talked once to a very kind of experienced, eminent publisher about this. And I asked him whether he agreed with the idea of second mover advantage. And he actually said, no, I think it's wrong. I think it's third mover advantage. Like the third person to publish a certain type of book is the person best place to capitalize. By the way, let me mention just a corollary here. It follows directly from this overvaluation of uniqueness. Publishers will often ask authors to identify competing books. And that's a slightly unfortunate phrase. It's a good phrase if we're talking about textbooks, which do genuinely compete compete against each other. But in other types of books, they're not necessarily in competition. I mean, you know, to give my example, monographs on the First World War, well, it's often the same people in the same libraries that buy all of them. So they're not really competing against each other. It's more they complement each other. And the mistake that authors make 
is that in comparing their books, comparing and contrasting their proposed book with other people, some people go into a zero sum mentality where what they do is diss everyone else's books. They say, well, there is this book on the subject, but that's no good. That's pretty hopeless, you know, mm-hmm. and they tell you all the things that are wrong with it. I wouldn't do that. I mean, for, for a start, it makes you just appear as unpleasant. <laughs> Just just dissing everyone else's work. I mean, who wants to work with someone who does that? And secondly, if a publisher uses a peer reviewer, you can bet your bottom dollar the peer reviewer will be the author of one of the books that you've just yes. dissed, and that might not go down quite so well. <laughs> yes. Wow. Okay. Um, okay. So um, I think we have one more pitfall. Uh, so mm. what yeah. would it be? I think it's a failure to explain to people why anyone would buy your book. So it's possible to write many pages of stuff about your proposed book and for it all to be all very interesting and sensible without ever actually saying, this is why people will buy the book. And if you leave that for the publisher to kind of try to infer by reading between the lines, that's a risky strategy. So you really need to have a section called something like, why customers will wish to buy this book and use phrases like you know people will wish to buy this book because the reasons that people will buy this book include the following and i think there it's very useful to use the word benefit so you can say this book will benefit readers by helping them do the following or the benefit of this book is that it will help readers in the following way and it seems to me This is a real test of whether you've got a good idea. If you write a sentence that says, this book will benefit readers by, or the benefit of this book for readers is, if you can't finish that sentence, you've got a problem. I don't think you've actually got a good idea for a book. Interesting. So if I may like connect the last two pitfalls, in, in one respect, mm. pitfall number three was more about grounding your work into wider literature, kind of connecting it to yeah. what is already there. And then in the last yes. one is more connecting it to the people, to like your audience. So grounding it into the consumer's field rather than into the academic or producer's field, which is, yes. yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting. It, it, yeah. Yeah, that's a good distinction. And actually, I'm going to just pick on one of the words you've used. You've just used the word audience. And of course... If you're thinking of yourself as a writer, thinking of your audience is a perfectly sensible thing to do. But it isn't the word that the publisher will use. The publisher will not talk about audience. They will talk about markets. Mm. And strictly speaking, this is a rather unromantic thing to say, but I happen to believe it's true. I think publishers don't really care who reads the book. I think they care who buys the book. <laughs> okay. I think it just um, hint that's kind of give us a way on what is the next episode on because we are going to lot, talk yeah. a lot about market uh, dimension yeah. next episode. Uh, but um, so just to s- summarize uh, for today for our audience to so we have a clear picture on where we are now and where we are going to go next time. So we yep. covered four main pitfalls uh, for today. We talk, You can lead talked about uh, the genre, um, what genre is a book proposal uh, in particular and what it is not. Uh, we talked as well about over-reliance on content um, in that just in, a, in the respect of like, do not just make the book proposal about what you your book is about, but there are other things that you need to consider as a, as a writer. Third, we talked about over-evaluation of uniqueness. 
uh, and fourth, we kind of ended up with a very positive, negative combined note on failure to explain bars, uh, motivation, uh, motivation, and um, opening up the idea of, of market dilemma, to say the least in this. Any final thoughts, um, things you wish to share on these or other ones, Dr. Anthony? Well, I think, what, uh, as you've indicated already, I think what we've left unsaid is a huge uh, range of points about um, thinking about the market for a book but I, I think we should leave that for the next episode excellent okay thank you so much Mr Anthony as always for such a very interesting and inspiring uh, episode okay thank you very much Inji I've really enjoyed it thank you and thank you all for listening this was Inji Musa with Anthony Haynes Grey Lit Cafe is edited by Dr Bart Hallmark and produced by Frontinus Limited Frontinus specializes in grey literature forms such as proposals, publications, papers, and reports. The music is from Handel's Water Music, courtesy of the United States Marine Band and Marine Chamber Orchestra. See you next time. Bye.